Hello beauties and welcome back to Aesthetic Chat with Kiki. I'm your host Kiana Gamble and I'm excited to talk to this next guest. My next guest is Dr. Brandon Dunn. He is a facial plastic surgeon and what I think is really really cool is Dr. Brandon Dunn reached out to me to share his advice and knowledge to all of you. So enjoy this one beauties. First, I want you to just kind of talk about your background, schooling, and getting you to where you are today. Okay, of course. So I, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, right before high school, I moved to Hawaii, actually. And so I went to medical school at the University of Hawaii. And after medical school, I did my training at the University of California, Irvine, in head and neck surgery. Um, and so I spent five years just working and doing everything in the face and in the head and neck region. After that, I decided to go into a fellowship in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. And I went to a busy high volume fellowship at the University of Kansas. Finally, after I finished my fellowship, I uh, came back to Orange County and uh, joined a practice in Newport Beach uh, doing skin cancer reconstruction and cosmetic surgery. Awesome. So how long have you been at the practice here in Newport Beach? I've been, so I started uh, August of last year. So I've been there almost a year now. Okay. And then total, I'm going to make you do a little math, total years of schooling up until now, how many years is all of that? Uh, Four years of college, two years of my master's in public health, five years for medical school. I took an additional year doing some research, five years uh, for head neck surgery training, and then one year for facial plastic. So a long time. Wow. So looking back and seeing all the things that you have done, my first question for you is, would you do it again? And what do you tell those people that are interested in, you know, they're just an undergrad, they're kind of pre-med, would you tell them to go down the route you're currently doing? You know, I, I would say that I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And in some ways that was, it it was helpful actually. And so all I knew is that I really enjoyed medicine. I really enjoyed working with people and that was kind of what led my journey. And I, you know, I had some personal issues with my family that where people had gotten sick and that really got me interested in the field. And then as I kind of continued to go on, I would say there was a lot of ups and downs along the way, but where I am now, I am so happy. Um, I love my work. I love working with my patients every single day. It is so rewarding. And so, yeah, I would say there are moments in time where I maybe uh, <laughs> didn't think I would, <laughs> I made the right decision, but now uh, where I am now, I'm, I'm extremely happy. Well, that's amazing. So how many days are you in surgery? How many days are you in the clinic currently? Yeah, that's a good question. So you know, the practice is extremely fluid at this point. So I'm early in my career, I'm building my brand, I'm building my practice, I came back to a really busy area of Newport Beach. And so my practice is uh, more heavily at this point in skin cancer reconstruction. And as I'm building my cosmetic surgery practice, that's, you know, that's going to kind of grow over time. But I spend, you know, surgery, can be every day or it can be, you know, one day a week. And so most of the time I'm spending in clinic and then whenever I have surgeries, I, it, it's kind of added within there. Gotcha. And so roughly, do you know how many facial plastic surgeons are in a mile or two radius from you in Newport Beach? 
too many. No. Um, <laughs> no. Actually, I would, so I would say facial plastic surgeons, there's not. I was actually, I was just on a call with one of my good friends and we were talking about, uh, so I'm currently at a conference, a facial plastics and um, it's facial rejuvenation and a rhinoplasty conference. And um, we were doing the math of, you know, there's 50 fellowships in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. And so every year, 50 people are graduated. And so in 10 years, only 500 people. And so it's really not a huge group. And that's saying that uh, the same number of fellowships existed 10 years ago, and it wasn't, it was significantly less. And so in our area, I would say there's probably 10, 20, maybe 20 facial plastic surgeons specifically. Um, okay. And then the rest are you know, other types of plastic surgeons, other training. Gotcha. So my next question for you is kind of overall, what are your thoughts on, you know, dermal, dermal fillers, Sculptra, just as a facial plastic surgeon, we can kind of get a wide array of opinions. So I'd love to hear yours. <clears throat> yeah. So I would say, I mean, they're great, but they have to be used for the right person. So, you know, I would say there's there's so many different treatment options on the market. And so it can be really confusing for the consumer. And so I think that uh, for the injector, for myself, you know, I think it has incredible amount of utility in prevention and also for kind of maintenance as well. And so even in patients that I do facelifts or rhinoplasties, there's utility in dermal fillers to be able to either really finesse or fine tune results afterwards because, you know, surgery is incredible and yes, it's long lasting and it, but it doesn't come without risk and it, it's not perfect. And so, you know, the filler um, approach is also utilized in the surgical approach too. So. And then are your same thoughts, similar for Sculptra, just because I know that Sculptra can be highly controversial, especially for someone who is performing facelifts. So what are your thoughts on Sculptra? Yeah, I've had a lot of injectors ask me, people that are solely doing injections, ask really, does it um, limit or influence our, our approach or the outcomes of surgery? I would say overall, no. It's a, you know, I think the most important thing is that we're aware that, you know, whatever treatments are known so that we can at least kind of plan accordingly. And, and when it comes to Sculptra, I mean, it's your own body creating scar tissue around a foreign body and, and it, it helps, uh, but it, it doesn't preclude anyone from having surgery. I don't think it necessarily changes the outcomes from surgery. It just means that the surgeon needs to be a little bit more cautious and a little bit more articulous in their dissection to achieve a good result. So it seems very crucial for people to understand what they're having injected and so they can be transparent with you. Exactly. So with these types of procedures, especially with fillers and sculptra, is there an ideal like time frame between someone doing filler and then you're allowing them to do a facelift procedure? Ideally, would you like to see filler sculpture utilized post or maybe a couple years prior? Yeah, I would say the more time between the treatment and surgery, the better, but you know, it's not always that way. So 
for Sculptra, Sculptra is really kind of a more of a long term, a long game as far as getting benefits. And so I would probably wait three to six months uh, for filler. I typically would uh, dissolve the filler if I'm doing like a lower blepharoplasty and they've had tear trough filler, or if they've ha- if they're having a rhinoplasty and I um, they've had nasal filler. I would try to re- dissolve the filler or at least wait for a year, a year and a half for that filler to ultimately go away, so that I know what I'm working with and so that I can you know, use my judgment without being influenced by this, you know, kind of this artificial variable. Gotcha. And so kind of transitioning, we're going to talk about, you know, liquid rhinoplasty. I'd love for you to chat about, you know, who needs liquid rhinoplasty and then who should be performing it? Of course. So for me, I think a liquid rhinoplasty has at least in my hands, it has incredible utility. You can really fine tune, finesse, and contour the nose in ways that you that are really challenging to do with surgery. And so there's a huge role in it. But yes, I would agree with you. I mean, the nose is one of the scariest places to inject on the face. And so and I'm not sure if the listeners are as familiar, but you know, the big risks that we always worry about, at least with liquid rhinoplasty, is, you know vascular occlusion causing ischemia or potentially the most feared complication, which is blindness. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that can happen in other areas. But I will say even talking, and I just recently did a podcast with Dr. Rivkin, who's, you know, one of the inventors and creators of creators of liquid rhinoplasty. And even we, you know, someone that's in the nose and injecting all the time and has seen the anatomy, there are still things that we worry about. And so, but we can do safe practices. And so I'd say the safe practices that I use to prevent complications is really small aliquots, always moving the needle and, you know, doing staged procedures. And so those are, you know, those are the big things. But if you think about injecting as every single time I inject, I am potentially in a dangerous place, then you will inject much less and you're much less likely to have complications. And then to your point that you were saying, you know, who should be injecting the nose? I I will say that obviously even someone that's in the nose and sees the anatomy all the time, I still don't even know where the blood vessels are sometimes because everyone's anatomy is so different. So to say that only facial plastic surgeons should be, you know, people that do rhinoplasty should want, should be the people injecting the nose. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that completely. I think that if people are trained really well and they are honest with themselves and honest with their patients and you have the mentorship to be able to learn these things and you've gone to anatomy labs, I think that introducing that into someone's practices is acceptable. But again, it's, it's the honesty, it's being transparent Um, And then the other caveat that I would say is injecting in the center of the nose is the most important. So staying midline is the safest area. So just injecting the dorsum and just injecting the tip are the two areas where you can be the safest. I don't stray even from that area because I still am, I'm worried about complications. Are you using ultrasound at all when you're injecting the nose? I do not. In terms of like longevity and then what products typically are you using when you're injecting the nose? And then in terms of, you know, when pa- and a patient asks, how long is this going to last? What do you kind of tell them? Yeah. So I will tell them that. So the product that I use is Restylane-L. That's the, the only product that I really feel comfortable using. I think that it has 
given me the best results. And so that's that's generally what I use. I don't use any permanent filler. I know some people do, but I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. If a patient wants a permanent result, I will discuss a rhinoplasty. And then as far as the longevity, I typically will say that it can last up to a year, a year and a half, depending on the individual. Are you seeing any issues with say someone really loves their result with the liquid rhinoplasty and you know it it's gone in a year and they want to come back are you having issues with injecting that same area again do you feel like you're not getting a similar or like an ideal result when you're injecting over and over and over or have you just not seen enough people back yet i haven't yeah i i can't really comment on that but i i don't see why I wouldn't be able to get a similar result, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally don't have enough experience to be able to comment on that. Gotcha. And then when you're saying, you know, small amounts in the nose, could, could you quantify like roughly how much you're using? So I don't change it to another syringe, but probably 0.05 to 0.02. Like, I mean, really small amounts and, and everything is going back and forth. And so what that means is, many pokes. And what that also means is a fair amount of swelling. And so that's why I stage my procedure. So, you know, your result is typically less than you expect at the second sitting, which is generally two weeks afterwards. And then I will, I will kind of enhance it and add a little bit more. And most people want just to touch up just a little bit more that second time. And then kind of looping back to what we were talking about in terms of like who should be performing the procedure. I totally agree with you for someone that, you know, has done their due diligence, is highly trained, has been doing injections a long time. But my concern is, especially with some of the people that could be listening to this podcast, is a lot of these injectors are new. And a lot of them are seeing, you know, some really great before and afters, or they're seeing so-and-so inject the nose and they're getting a great result. So they're like, not necessarily... I wouldn't say they're well-equipped to know how to manage complications. And so for those people, I definitely want to stress, like, do not perform liquid rhinoplasty. (laughs) Some of these injectors have been injecting since, you know, when Breslin came out. And so very, very highly knowledgeable people. And so I agree with you in that. That brings up a really good point. So the big thing about injecting a nose is making sure that you have a protocol, a really well-defined protocol for every single time if you have any concerns about a complication from a good rhinoplasty. So, um, you know, my my treatments are aspirin, nitropace, Hylinex, a ton of Hylinex, uh, warm compress, and then hyperbaric oxygen. That's for uh, tissue ischemia. And then for, for a vascular occlusion, so I don't feel comfortable if there's a concern for like blindness or any sort of vision changes. I, luckily, I've never seen it personally, but I have seen it come in through the ER during my training, which is really frightening. I would send it to the ER or have an ophthalmologic, you know, good friend, uh, oculoplastics or uh, ophthalmologist that would feel comfortable injecting Hylinex into the orbit. And so those are, you know, if you don't have these things available and set up and fully, you know, well-tuned, then you, you're exactly right. You should not be injecting into the nose because those are the most important things. You need to be ready for it at any time. So I do kind of want to transition, especially talking from a surgical standpoint. I feel like sometimes the newer injector does not know when they should, you know, be sending people off for consults for surgery. So I would like you to talk a little bit about, you know, facial aging concerns and when you think injectors should be referring to you. Of course. Well, 
I wouldn't say there's an easy answer to this. I mean, I think that it comes with experience and comes with patient expectations. But, you know, I find that most patients, and I, I kind of make a arbitrary cutoff, but I, I think that there's some utility in it. But, you know, the age of 40, most people will do awesome with non-surgical treatment. After 40 is generally when you have to start thinking about other other treatment modalities other than, you know, injectables or non-surgical approaches. And so, you know, when you look at the face, you want to assess it in all of its layers. And so for me, I, you know, you want to look at the, the skin laxity, you want to look at the muscle banding or the muscle weakness, um, and then also submental like uh, fat tissues or a different fullness in different areas. And so, you know, the changes that occur um, with aging become much more difficult to camouflage, which is ultimately what fillers do, the older and older that you get. And I think that it's not to say that fillers aren't good in certain places, you know, like cheeks and things like that. But, you know, when people tend to have jowling or they tend to have submental fullness with skin laxity or platysmal banding, those are things that are, are really much better treated with surgical approaches than treated with kind of camouflaging with filler. Great point. In your practice, do you guys do other non-surgical like treatment modalities like microneedling with RF and like CO2 and those types of things? We do microneedling. We don't have microneedling with RF available at our practice. I do CO2, I do V-beam, I do microneedling, I do chemical peels, I'll do dermabrasion for all skin resurfacing treatments. So yes. And then for those listening, I feel like the ones that are in, you know, more like of the medical spa practices, I feel like there is a disconnect in sometimes understanding the roles of, you know, CO2 surgery, things that you can perform versus like someone that's maybe an RN in a med spa. So could you kind of touch a little bit on the role of CO2 and also when to kind of refer individuals to CO2? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I think, again, it's, I mean, all of this is really a continuum, but I, I would say that, you know, CO2 laser is incredible. The results are spectacular in the right patient. Um, you know, it's for lower Fitzpatrick, one, two, maybe three with some pretreatment, but anything higher than that, you really can't do CO2 laser. You know, the CO2 laser has the ability to really adjust all of its power settings and all of these different things. And so you can kind of play with it and treat different areas of the face with different levels of strength. And so it, the big thing that it does is it helps with really just kind of giving you a fresh slate to work with. So it, it takes off essentially the top layer of skin by making small holes and uh, introducing energy um, into the skin and causing the skin to tighten and also kind of take off the top layer. So it's really powerful, but it can also, I mean, in the right, in the right patient is great, but it also can cause complications too if, if, you're, um, if you're not cautious. You've only been in this kind of side of things for coming up on a year, correct? So, I mean, since you are newer to the cosmetic side of things, have you noticed as well that, you know, they have really kind of divided MDs and non-physician injectors in terms of the space of education and even conferences and things? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, (laughs) I think that there is a divide. And I mean, ultimately, you know, one of my goals actually is to try to get more involved in the educational component 
And, you know, I think that people that have been injecting that don't necessarily have an MD, but have been injecting for 20 years have so much experience in that they can that they could share as well. And so just because, you know, we went through the school and the training, I don't think it necessarily, you know, means that we're not on the same playing field at all. And so I would say, I think a lot of at least the injectable companies are trying to bridge these gaps and, and, and trying to, you know, have people of all different um, backgrounds come and teach. And, and I think that, that, I think that's helpful. And I mean, I think it's helpful to have everyone sit at the table to kind of discuss these things, but yeah, I mean, naturally, I think it, unfortunately in most societal things, you know, we have our own categories and our groups and things like that. So there's some limitations to that, but yes. Absolutely. I answers your question. No, I think, I think it does. I think that, Again, within healthcare, there's like a natural hierarchy and there's a reason for the kind of pecking order, as you would say, in terms of safety. But I think that I think it's great to hear from more physicians that nurse injectors that have been doing this a long time do hold value and they do have a lot of experience and knowledge and things that they can bring forth and make the industry better as well. Definitely. So I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, you working on building a brand, especially within aesthetic surgery and um, being in Newport Beach where there are 20 other facial, facial plastic surgeons, how does that work for you being very new and kind of jumping into this realm that's a cosmetics that's also a different part of medicine? Right. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I ask myself that question often. You know, I... I have so many years of training in head and neck surgery and I ask myself, why, you know, why am I doing this? This is an uphill battle. I have a guaranteed salary doing head and neck surgery, but here I am, you know, making, doing this uphill battle. And so I, I asked myself that and I, and I think really you just have to, for me, you have to have an answer of why. If you don't have a, a why you want to do this, then you're not going to be willing to, to kind of push through these challenging times. But for me, I would say, you know, the biggest thing that I have is my ability to kind of go out and, and just kind of network and, and get to know as many people as possible. And so that's that's where I'm starting. And those are, you know, um, those are many of the things that I'm doing. So networking, going out into the community, meeting as many people, working with as many patients as possible and, and you know, and providing good results. And then hopefully, ultimately, a word of mouth kind of progresses from there. And then the next big part is obviously a social present. There's, you know, there's a lot of taboo and, and maybe some negative thoughts towards social media, but, you know, there's, there's no opportunity. Uh, there's no other opportunity in the world where you can have free marketing and you can reach as many people as, as possible. I mean, there's so many platforms out there with different ways of connecting with people based on either content or based on your friend's network or your social network. And so trying to, you know, my goal is trying to utilize those things to really to network outside of my immediate space. And so that's, that's kind of where I am. I'd say the other thing is, is, you know, trying to figure out and kind of identify my voice. I think that early on, you don't necessarily have your message completely, you know, fine tuned and figured out. And I think that that comes with time and just talking to people and, and learning, learning more about yourself. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I'm, that's where I am. And, um, I'm enjoying the process as far as, <clears throat> as far as the day to day, I really do. That's amazing. Do you think 
you are going to kind of wedge yourself into a niche of being kind of the liquid rhinoplasty, kind of that being your focal area, just because I feel like a lot of, you know, facial plastics end up kind of narrowing in on their like signature treatment. Well, that may, you know, there isn't really a big presence for liquid rhinoplasty in Newport Beach and Beverly Hills isn't far. And, you know, there's a, there's a few up there that are doing it as their signature, but that may be one of the approaches. I mean, you know, doing facial plastic surgery, one of the unique sides is that, I mean, I, everything I know and everything I do is just within the face. And so I think that having these, this really focused understanding of the anatomy and how things work is, is kind of my unique approach to things. you know, when comparing to general plastic surgeons who, who treat the entire body. Um, I think that's one of the things that I try to try to kind of highlight. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy liquid rhinoplasty. And again, it's such a quick procedure with such incredible results that I think I will, I will definitely continue to expand that. And then one of my questions for you is within your medical training and prior to transitioning more cosmetic, did you have any formal like business training, marketing training, anything like that? Or has it been a lot of learn as you go? Or do you have, have you hired people to help you with marketing? I didn't. Um, I, I, it really has been learning as I go and just kind of talking and meeting with people and trying to pick everyone's brain that I, um, that I meet along this journey. Um, I just recently hired a social media marketing intern to kind of help me with uh, post-production editing of videos and, and help kind of, you know, she's, she's in college. And so, you know, maybe provide some newer, younger ways of thinking about uh, different approaches and utilizing platforms and websites. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I, I think that there's um, there's a lot to learn, and I, I definitely did not have the foundation or the background uh, starting out. Did you think, you know, starting out going to med school and things, you would end up having to learn how to, you know, make Instagram posts and TikToks and all these different things? I had no idea. <laughs> I, I One thing I always said that I wanted to do, and this is just kind of odd, but one thing I always said I wanted to do is I wanted to sell cars before I got into med school. Because I feel like if you can sell a car or a used car, you can sell anything. And honestly, that would have been, I probably would have learned so much along that, that journey and would have felt much more prepared. But yeah, I'm learning on the job. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very cool. I think that we all kind of are. Well, I, I appreciate you putting these podcasts out because, I mean, it's just nice to hear people's stories and to see, you know, people at different stages of the career and figure out how each person figures it out. Because, you know, every time that you listen to someone's story or someone talk, you can always take a little pearl and hopefully that will kind of help uh, help with your trajectory. So, yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Oh, well, thank you. I would like you to share with everyone, what is one of the major things that you have learned within this last year of kind of transitioning to cosmetics? I'd say the one, one thing that I learned time and time again is to be honest with yourself as a provider. And so what I learned is that, you know, sometimes you want to say what they want to hear, say what you, they, they think they want to hear. But I think, you know, ultimately they're coming, people are coming to you or me for my opinion and, you know, my training and my expertise. And so 
you know, giving them my opinion and not kind of skirting around and just being very direct. Um, I think that patients appreciate that. And I think that that is, ex- I think that creates a, a very healthy relationship, patient provider relationship. And so that's, that's one thing I really have learned. And for someone that is hoping to, you know, kind of go down your same path and eventually end up in the surgical realm of things, is there one thing that you wish you would have known or someone had told you any pearl of advice about um, the journey that they're about to embark on? So much. (laughs) I would say the big, I mean, honestly, the big thing is just enjoying the journey and, um, you know, appreciating your mentors and, um, and listening to your mentors and, and just kind of being okay with not making the mistake or making mistakes and not knowing the right answer every single time and just kind of enjoying the process of figuring things out along the way. So I think that's the big thing. I know you're still kind of figuring out your own things, but if people were interested in coming to shadow you or watch you in the OR, watch even in-office procedures, is that a possibility at all? Yes, I would love it. Yeah. Reach out to me. I can give you my email um, and I'd be happy to happy to coordinate anything. Awesome. So tell those listening where they can find you on Instagram, where they can find your practice, kind of all of those um, contact details. Yeah, of course. So um, again, my name is Brandon Dunn, um, and my Instagram is Dr. Brandon Dunn. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, LinkedIn. Uh, my website is brandondunnmd.com, and currently I'm working at uh, the Appearance Center of Newport Beach, California. And so i um, happy to see anyone or talk with anyone that has any questions. Well, amazing. Thank you, Dr. Brandon Dunn, for coming on the podcast. It was really, really fun to chat with you. So cool to finally have our first MD on Aesthetic Chat with Kiki. So thank you again, Dr. Brandon Dunn, for chatting with me today. The podcast episodes and the podcast guests, they keep me on my toes. Love that I learn so much from each one. So yeah, thank you for continuing to listen along, but you know where to find the podcast and all the details, but it's at aesthetic.chatwithkiki is the podcast Instagram, aestheticnurse.kiki is my Instagram, you know, the website aestheticnursekiki.com, don't forget to check that out. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, but until next time, beauties, bye. Bye.